Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is our podcast. We've got a great show this week featuring a discussion about technology, democracy, and the public sphere with Ali Velshi, the MSNBC anchor of the show named after him and then NBC correspondent. Karen Kornbluh, director of the German Marshall Fund's Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative, and Emily Bell, founding director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. To start things off this week, I check in with Tech Policy Press co-founder Brian Jones and our fellow Romy Geller, who is a research assistant for the Propaganda Program at the Center for Media Engagement in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. So, hey, Brian. Hey, Romy. How are you doing today? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, I'm doing good, too. Let's talk a little bit about the tech news. Um, uh, What are you two seeing out there right now? Yeah, so I read a report this week. um, In September 2020, the Central for Democracy and Technology brought together a group of experts to kind of talk about disinformation research and some of the blind spots they were seeing. So they released a report this week kind of of their general findings. And some of the things they talked about is how producers of misinformation are motivated by different incentives. And they also use different methods and tools to spread disinformation, like social media and memes. They also said disinformation is designed to meet um, kind of a demand for compelling and evocative content. What I found most interesting was the gaps they found. So some of the stuff they talked about was um, more work needs to be done to kind of define disinformation and um, define its impact. Um, They really lack evidence of the impact of disinformation on things like electoral outcomes, political opinions, trust in political institutions. And they really need better understanding of um, fact-checking in communities that might be more difficult, kind of like Spanish-speaking communities. Well, so the report, Remy, is uh, Disinformation, Race and Gender from the Center for Democracy and Technology. And so what they're trying to essentially kind of create a a little bit of a uh, guidance for researchers on the sorts of things they should be looking at. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I'm I'm interested in that, too. I think that uh, that's one of the key things missing right now is hard evidence of the connection between Uh, disinformation and its impact on uh, some of those key aspects of democracy that you mentioned, electoral outcomes, participation, other things of that nature. We all kind of uh, generally understand that these are corrosive practices, but, you know, hard evidence is is always valuable. Uh, Brian, what are you looking at over there? Yesterday, the Maryland State Senate overrode the governor's veto of a very unique measure. So Maryland by this vote passed the nation's very first tax on revenue from digital advertisements. So advertisements sold by companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Um, The tax applies to any digital ad displayed inside the state and is essentially a progressive tax. So companies that make less than hundred million a year don't pay any tax, but by the time you're making more than $15 million a year, you're gonna pay a 10% tax. And the state of Maryland believes that it may generate as much as $250 million in the first year after enactment and have earmarked that money to go to schools. Do we think that that kind of thing is going to happen elsewhere in the country? 
It looks like this may be the, the beginning. There's a couple of other states that are looking at similar bills this, uh, this spring, so we'll, we'll see. But I also expect that this will be challenged in court pretty quickly, and it will be interesting to find out whether or not states have the ability to tax internet commerce and digital ads that are shown within that state. So, Brian, I know you're, you're a lawyer. I mean, can you remind everybody why this is so uncommon or why this is peculiar? You're, you're, you have to look at the history of taxation and nexus and interstate commerce and whether or not this is something that is the states have the right to tax or whether this is a federal issue and, and whether there's exemptions. And so even the collection of state tax on Internet goods that were sold was controversial until a couple of years ago. And so this is going down the same same path. My expectation is that it will be found to be legal and constitutional, but that's why the, the process will play out. You also were looking at a news story from a little further afield. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of other stories that I think are, are important this week. You know, Oklahoma following last week's conversation about what Virginia did around consumer privacy, they have an act um, that got put forward called the Oklahoma Computer Data Privacy Act, which would require companies to obtain prior consent before collecting and selling consumer data. Another interesting one is that the Biden administration is pushing pause on any attempt to ban TikTok in the U.S. and is going to reevaluate that stance. And then the last one is really interesting. Um, it ties into to proposals that I know you've put forward before. Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, came out yesterday and endorsed an Australian proposal that would require tech gatekeepers like Facebook and Google to share revenue with local independent news organizations. And he concludes that the United States should not object to this proposal, but instead should copy it and implement it here in the U.S. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, that's a, a you know, a lot of folks would call that the Murdoch proposal, uh, given he was one of the proponents of that. Um, and I don't know how popular that would be here in the United States, but I guess we'll see how it goes in Australia. And maybe if it works there, we can think about it here. It'll be a great litmus test. What about you, Justin? What are you seeing this week? So I just had the opportunity to spend a little time uh, thinking about my own city's use of surveillance technologies. And we're going to have a little more about that next week uh, here on the podcast. But New York City uh, in the last couple of weeks has had to release some public statements about uh, the various technologies that it uses for police surveillance. And in Wired magazine, uh, Albert Fox Kahn from the uh, nonprofit group uh, Stop, which is really opposed to police surveillance, and Justin Sherman, who's at the uh, Duke uh, Center for Ethical Tech, really put forward an argument around why a lack of police transparency around surveillance technology is such a problem and why these disclosures from the NYPD really are totally insufficient for the types of technologies they describe. So they look in particular at things like facial recognition, drones, predictive policing, uh, other types of mechanisms that the police are using and uh, really lay out why it is that, um, you know, the public needs to know exactly how these technologies are being employed, exactly how they're being used and why we, you know, even with new legislation here in New York that's meant to bring a bit more transparency, we still don't have any idea. All right, you too. Well, uh, thanks very much. I hope you both have a good Good week. Yeah, you too. Stay, stay warm, guys. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Rami.
thinking ain't gonna die I'm broke and I ain't gonna die I'm broke ain't gonna die Everybody get to the heart of I teach a graduate course at NYU Tandon School of Engineering in the Integrated Digital Media Program and in the NYU Tisch Interactive Telecommunications Program, or ITP, called Technology, Media, and Democracy. It's a partnership of multiple schools, and this year I'm teaching alongside Moore Naman at Cornell Tech and David Carroll at the New School. In our class the other night, we had a discussion with Ali Velshi, the MSNBC anchor of the show named after him, Karen Kornblue, director of the German Marshall Fund's Digital Innovation Democracy Initiative, and Emily Bell, founding director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. The conversation was about the importance of a healthy public sphere, the media and technology, and how to solve the epistemic crisis that is plaguing democracy. Here's Ali Velshi. It's trendy these days to flirt with uh, different political structures, uh, but the one that we have, the the the, the uh, democracy, still is the system that best achieves most of our goals because it's a system in which each individual, in theory, should get an equal vote and equal tra- uh, treatment under the law. As that world map shows us, even places that call themselves democracies don't always achieve that, including here in the United States. But it is the most tried and true system to prevent. Uh, authoritarian rule, dictatorships, and tyranny, which you see are on the other side of that map. So uh, while I know people flirt with the idea that maybe we shouldn't have democracy, I think we should. We can certainly um, improve it. We don't have the finest system of equity and distribution of wealth, for instance, something that I concentrate on. But it's important not to confuse that with democracy as a as a system of, of government and, and choosing our government. We probably want better and more equal justice. We probably want uh, better and more equal distribution of resources. We want fairer policing. Uh, But we don't want a system in which your stake in the political system is devalued. So that looks like democracy right now. That's, That's probably why we want to preserve democracy. Democracy basically allows participants a say, should you avail yourself of it. It's not perfect, but it's probably better than the alternatives. Now, as we have all learned, and as you specifically are probably learning, Democracy is still a system in which uh, garbage in, garbage out applies. A democracy depends on a relatively well-informed electorate, and well-informed voters depend on a robust information landscape. Now, when I was in college as an undergraduate, the internet sort of came into mainstream existence. And I remember thinking, my, my, my one thought, I was a young reporter at the time, and my one thought was, this was going to be amazing because everyone could verify anything at any time and good information would simply smother bad information out of existence. And then came social media many years later. And I remember thinking to myself, I was still stupid. I thought to myself, as I I was a very early adopter of social media, and I thought no one will ever be able to lie again because the crowd will see the lie and it will correct them in in real time. Uh, Clearly, I was wrong about both things. But it's important to realize that not everything in the information ecosystem was working perfectly before social media or before the Internet. Today, I keep hearing people lament the demise of objective journalism. Um, And I I like to remind them there probably hasn't been there's been more of history without objective journalism than with it. 
first of all. And, and what we are learning today, and very much in 2020, for instance, is that what we thought of was uh, uh, objective journalism, um, maybe wasn't all that representative or didn't, didn't take in perspectives. Uh, in this country, the advent of newspapers, were they were advocacy vehicles. They were all political. So I'm not sure, and it's worthy of debate as to whether objectivity is the answer for journalism, but the information landscape, in my opinion, depends on two major issues, and there are two flaws at the moment. The flaws are the inability to discern fact from opinion, okay? That's a very clear one, the inability to discern fact from opinion. Number two, equally as important and perhaps uh, maybe more so, the inability to discern fact from fiction, actual truth, lies. I thought the internet was going to solve all this. It didn't solve any of it. There's also a great deal of inequality in the world right now, which means that people who are frustrated about their inability to get a proper education, or they get an education, but they can't get paid work, or they're frustrated about how much they earn, or they're frustrated about the absence of health care or jobs or education, even people in democracies, they are ripe for recruitment into populist, nativist, nationalist movements. And that used to be an overseas problem, but as you've seen, it's now also an American problem. It's probably obvious to you how this can all go very, very wrong. But I, I, I want to point you to Germany between World War I and World War II as a, an example I, I tend to cite because you can look at other countries where the information ecosystem is not good and, and it leads to bad things, but you can easily say, well, that's not like us. Germany, and I understand if you're not all students of, of that period, but Germany uh, between World War I and World War II, as they were getting into the 30s really, was a robust country um, that by any measure was remarkably advanced in science, in medicine, in art, in literature, in music. And arguably, there's a great author at Yale, Timothy Snyder, who writes about this. If Germany had not gone off track, it actually might have been the dominant society of the 20th, 20th century. It was the, one of the most advanced societies of its time, but it went so badly off track. And at its heart, the destruction of Germany was about manipulating people's grievances by using bad information that they were susceptible to believing. It led to unspeakable horror, um, primarily for, for the Jews of the world and for Europe, but actually also for the German people. It destroyed their society. It destroyed Europe for a while. Uh, and it, it damaged the world as a whole. So what you're currently witnessing in America, and I'm careful about these comparisons, obviously, because we're not like Germany in, in the 40s. But what you're seeing in America is the beginning of something that can go very off track. We're not going to end up like Germany, but the world's most important democracy, the United States, can actually wreck itself. And bad information will be at the heart of it if it happens. People have grievances. There's no question. Whether or not those grievances are valid there are bad actors all over the world who will manipulate those grievances. And rather than address them, they will point their fingers at some group, large or small, and they will cause that grievance or those sets of grievances to be blamed on identifiable groups. It's what the alt-right is, by the way. The alt-right was never one group of people. They were all in their own little chat rooms and their own little existences. Some complained about university admissions. Some complained about women. Some complained about uh, minorities. and and and. Bad actors brought them all together. The, the internet helped. Social media really helped. Uh, and, and they became a, a force to be reckoned with. 
So you, you see how this plays out, right? You all saw it on, on uh, January 6th. You, you identify an other, you blame the other, you ascribe motives to the other, and things can go very, very badly. So that's where people like me and people like you, I think, come in. I am not only a purveyor of information, but my audience tends to be very politically motivated. MSNBC tends to cater to a, a very liberal audience. So I have to see and understand and internalize the damage that media has done and can do. And I have to work to actively counter that. So I have to present facts um, and, and competing arguments uh, and be, pre be prepared to put my own ideas on the line to be examined and dissected and criticized. But I have to be careful because competing arguments doesn't mean somebody who's here to talk about climate and somebody who is here to deny that climate change exists. And we've seen this over the years. We've seen it with oil. We've seen it with cigarettes. Uh, we've seen it over and over again. Uh, false equivalency, uh, platforms uh, given to, to people who are, are talking nonsense. Now, I'm not a typical reporter in that my show, uh, which is Saturday and Sunday, 8 to 10 a.m., uh, in case you ever get very, very bored or sleepless, um, my show is about my perspective, which is born of 30 years of experience, largely as an economics and, and global affairs journalist, more recently uh, involved in, in more political things. But I actually have for some time been a, a reporter who covers bad things. So I was covering hurricanes for many years at, at, at CNN. I, I cover school shootings, sadly, terror attacks, things like that. And I go on location. And when I report from those places, it's actually uh, just factual reporting about what's going on. But there was a hybrid that occurred in, I think it was the end of May, May 29th, June 1st or something of this year in Minneapolis, where I was covering the, the death of George Floyd and the, the protests afterwards. And it was one night, I think it was the Thursday night or something. And there, you, if you Google my name, this will probably be the thing that comes up. I'm standing in front of a, a liquor store that's burning. And that night, uh, you know, the protesters were, were, were gathered and at night things always in protests get a little more heated. So I, I'm describing on TV, I'm, for hours and hours I'm on TV, I'm talking to the anchor, Brian Williams, and I'm describing to him how there's a fire here, there's fire there, I can see five fires burning, there are fire engines over there, but they can't get in because this crowd is too big and it's, it's, it's rough. There are no police, in fact, the police station over there is one of the things that's burning because it's been taken over by, by protesters. So I'm illustrating all of the violence and the you can see it because the camera's there and buildings are burning. And I, I feared that the viewer might get the impression that everybody here is violent and Minneapolis is burning. And, and whenever you see coverage of places in the world, you'll see that when you talk about Afghanistan or Iraq, you just think the whole thing's a mess. So I wanted to make sure that my viewers didn't get that impression. So for all of 20 seconds, I said, Brian, I want to just make sure that I don't uh, I don't create the wrong impression. This is actually mostly a peaceful protest, uh, but there have been things like this that have happened. And, you know, the implication is that in media, the image always catches you more than than what somebody is saying. So you're seeing a burning city around me, including this liquor store, but it's actually not the full story. This is one block in Minneapolis. The rest of Minneapolis is actually quiet and all of that. If you Google my name and Minneapolis, all you will see is that 20 seconds. You will see it mostly on conservative websites, and you will see it as proof that the media lies to people. It made it to Donald Trump's speeches during his, his rallies in the final days of his election. He used me as the example of fake news. It resulted in my having to travel with security everywhere I go because he would say this to these audiences of Trump fans, most of whom don't watch MSNBC, so they would have had no idea who I am. But just so Trump made sure you knew who I was, he referred to my bald head and shaving one's head and all of that. He'd even made it to the floor of Congress in testimony about these protests. So I, I literally... 
I, I talked for hours and hours and hours. I talked for 20 seconds about, hey, make sure I don't, you don't get the wrong impression because this isn't the whole picture. And that's the only thing that actually made it uh, onto most media. Uh, and, and I've had a good opportunity to talk about that and protests and, and, and how we need to cover these things. But I just want to close off by saying this. Accuracy, exposition, and reliability are what matter. Okay, when I say accuracy, I think you all know what I mean. You must be well-informed and correct in the information that you present, no matter what it is you do. If you live, if you are a purveyor of information, you have to be accurate. Exposition, this is important because how you tell the story is important. I talk, I give commentaries, I write. Uh, some things are best done on video. Some things are best done as infographics. And, and this is where many of you will, will specialize. You'll figure out the best ways to tell the story. But the exposition is really, really important. All things don't work on all people. And mostly reliability. You must deliver your information accurately in a way that is appropriate and digestible for your audience. It's trustworthy, and you need to do it consistently. Those are the things that, that will help us preserve a healthy information ecosystem. We all talk, we all text, we all post things. Uh, but for those of us who actually choose to be in the business of information, the bar is now higher. When young people used to come to me and ask if they should pursue careers as journalists, I would literally say to them, get a little more schooling and become a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer, make some real money and be happy. I now don't say that anymore. Because to be a purveyor of information in these fraught times is absolutely an important calling. It's probably, it's more than important. It's actually uh, crucial. And with that, I'll, I'll hand it back to you guys. Okay, thank you, Ali. Um, and I actually want to start, Emily and Karen, with you all. We wanted to talk tonight um, about the public sphere as an idea. Um, and I wondered which of you would, would maybe just kind of take a crack at that. This idea has kind of evolved over the last few decades, but... Ali is a, a participant right now in the public sphere. He's actively shaping the flow of information in the public sphere. But what the hell is the public sphere? I mean, so, so the public sphere is, if I was a better communication scholar, I could uh, run you through Habermas. But I think what most people think of as a public sphere is, if you like, sort of the kind of sense-making process of having publicly available information and discussion and news, don't forget, is not just the relaying of information, it's also some of the community and discussion around it uh, as well, which allows a community to self-govern, you know, to, to create government. So, so it, is the, it is the bit before self-governance uh, and it's made up of institutions like the press, politicians, it's not a physical space, but increasingly it's something where we try and put in our, I think, sort of envision in our heads uh, who actually holds the public sphere. And I think, you know, in, in, in the you know, past times, you might say, well, broadcast television or, you know, the town crier or, you know, anything that was a public expression of discussion, you know, kind of I come from London where you have speakers corner in Hyde Park where people go and sort of yell um, opinions and people would kind of, you know, engage them in discussion or throw tomatoes at them. That, you know, the, the public sphere now is something which actually happens, you know, we, we're now talking about the digital sphere and ha how that can be public. So Karen is much better at describing that than I am. Yeah, I, I guess I would just add to what Emily said. I mean, I, I thought she was, you know, saved me. I thought that was a great description. But some of the things that have been coming out that complicate it have to do with, you know, on what conditions are people participating in the public sphere? You know, so after Citizens United, you know, corporations are participating not only in, so when Ali talks about 
the early days of the internet and how we thought it was going to bring total transparency. We also thought it was going to create this place where the voiceless would suddenly have voice to participate in the public sphere. The powerless would be able to participate in the public sphere. And what's happened, unfortunately, is you know, those with a lot of money, those with a lot of data, as David Carroll can tell us, you know, um, wield outsize influence. The other thing that I would think about is association, that association is so important in democracy. And we've seen through some of the, and I don't want to jump ahead, you know, uh, Facebook has claimed it creates communities and would make association better. We've actually seen fake you know, the Russians created fake affinity groups, like completely interrupting, you know, people's association where they didn't know who they were. You know, if you're associating with a bot, you're not and you don't know it. Um, and then institutions, you know, whether it's the medical profession or the scientific profession or the legal profession or universities, um, those are all so important in sort of mediating the public sphere and democracy more broadly. And we've seen that those have been really weakened. So let me let me kind of put this to the three of you. You know, one of the things that we are kind of constantly arguing about, it seems like, is is the extent to which um, the information ecosystem or the public sphere is screwed up by tech and media, or whether it's more of a reflection of things that are going on in society that are a bigger problems. So chicken or egg a bit. But with regard to, we, we talked about at the outset, democracy kind of slipping backwards a bit in the US and perhaps abroad. What's the reason for that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, Roger McNamee, who, who wrote Zucked, uh, has said uh, several times that he thinks social media is incompatible with democracy. Uh, that's definitely one side of the issue. There, there are others who don't think that's the case. I think, I think the speed at which information travels has just been manipulated by the, the very forces that, that Karen was mentioning, right? These things don't exist in a vacuum. There are times when people have real grievances and there are real protests, and those protests lead to uh, real things, including the American Revolution. Um, and there are times when it's just a lot of BS, where people think that these are their own ideas, but they're not. And I've been traveling across the country. I've, I've been traveling through the entire coronavirus. I've been speaking to voters before the election and after that to small business owners. And the, the nonsense that people believe, we'd be having conversations about the election, and I, I, I learned to start taking documents with me that had the performance of the stock market, that had the number of people infected by coronavirus, that had the number of people died who had died. And I had said to people, you know, the United States is 4.25% of the world's population, but 20% of the coronavirus cases and 20% of the coronavirus deaths. By what measure do you believe that we're succeeding in this? And they would say to me, your information is incorrect. You're, you know, they, they were nice to me. They wouldn't call me a liar, but people have based important things on false information that they get from the internet and from their groups of people. So it used to be if you had a crazy uncle at Thanksgiving who told you this stuff and you compartmentalize that and that was all there was. Th this ability to belong to groups that Facebook said you could do, but this idea, this ability to, to form community around your, your incorrect ideas, I do think that part of things is incompatible with democracy because it creates stupid people. And then those people vote. And, and I believe me, they believe everything they're saying. These people I encounter don't think they're getting one over on me. They think I'm not telling the truth and they've got the truth. So I, I, I think I, I don't know if, it's, I, if I've answered whether it's a chicken or an egg, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it's definitely both. Well, 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 say what went wrong and what has gone wrong. Because I'm a European, I'm going to say capitalism. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
always my answer to everything. But I'm, I'm partially serious about that in that um, I spent, like, like Ali, I spent many of my years as a business journalist. And there is something in business journalism that we refer to uh, called Gresham's Law, which is the law that in an unregulated financial market, bad money always drives out good. So in other words, the reason we have lots of regulation around finances because when you don't put in guardrails, then the people with no scruples, with no ethics, uh, will always, always dominate because they will just do things that other people won't. And if you think about um, the structure of uh, social media, of tech companies, so again, saying tech is shorthand often for a small number of extremely large companies. I don't think when we say tech, we mean Tim Berners-Lee figuring out that the World Wide Web would be a really, really great thing. You know, it's not, it's not one thing. Uh, and, and these companies have been allowed to grow largely completely unregulated. Uh, and, and speech and finance are pretty interlinked on those platforms. So what we've had is what you would completely expect to see in, a in an unregulated financial market, which is uh, what started out as perhaps, you know, um, you, some of your students may recognize this analogy, uh, good fun day trading and an, uh, and, and an answer to what felt like large monolithic uh, institutions, a chance to push back against them actually can be manipulated by those, as Karen said, with more power, more money, more technology, uh, to drive out um, all of those sort of, you know, good faith, civically based uh, kind of conversations that we were hoping would, would dominate, because you cannot have those without some kind of uh, regulatory structure. Yeah, so to, I would just say two things about that, I, to follow through with it. It's not only not a fair fight because some folks have more money and more technology and more power, but I would argue that the platforms themselves make it an unfair fight because by their design and settings, unlike the hope of people like Ali Velshi and me in the early days of social media, there's, um, there's a lack of transparency. So you can make a content mail that slaps false headlines on month old articles that have nothing to do with the headline, you know, look like a news outlet to be treated by the platform, like a news outlet. You can coordinate a network of pages that promote that outlet and they're sharing money or they're, you know, sharing their share ownership or what have you. And you won't, the user won't know it. And it can be promoted by a network of bots or coordinated folks it can be thrown at you by a group and you don't really know who's organizing it. Influencers who have an interest. So people wind up getting manipulated in this Skinner box of a social media platform and not, so what the power of the disinformation of the conspiracy theory is not the actual lie. Like the classic one from 2016 was the Pope endorses Donald Trump. It's not the, the words themselves. It's the information laundering. It's the fact that you think it's a reputable outlet that you sort of have this idea that journalism meets these standards and you think it's come from that. You think it's come from a friend. You think it's been subject to the wisdom of the crowd. You think Facebook wouldn't send it to you if it weren't true. 
Ali, tell us a little more about what you saw out there in the field across the country. I think you've probably traveled the country more than maybe anybody else on the call. Yeah, I, weirdly, I probably travel, traveled more this year than I've ever traveled before because I've, I've just been going out and seeing and talking to people. Uh, I, I, I have to say, you know, 2020 is a lousy year and everybody's glad to have it behind us. But there will be some things that came out of 2020 that are kind of amazing. The the social justice awakening uh, is remarkable. It is reminiscent of the, the most active years of the, the 60s, which, by the way, if you were involved in the civil rights movements in the 60s, it was kind of terrible. But they were setting hoses on you and, and dogs and things like that. It didn't feel like fun back then, but it changed the world. And 2020 is going to be a year for a lot of reasons that changed the world, right? For, for all of you listening to this, in 20 years and 25 years, they're only going to talk about this year. They're going to ask you, what was it like in 2020? How did you do school? What did you learn? What was going on? Uh, the social justice movement was remarkable. The warped information ecosystem and, and confronting that firsthand was remarkable. I, I couldn't believe my own eyes. I've been in this business closing in on 30 years now, and I could not believe what I was hearing from people. The election was remarkable. Um, the, the fact that we motivated more people. I mean, the, the number of commentaries I delivered on, why don't you all just go out and vote? Um, you know, you, you complain a whole lot about democracy, but why don't you complain after you actually vote and see what happens? And what blows my mind is that we are finding people who were arrested on January 6th, storming the Capitol, who did not cast a ballot. You've got to be kidding me. Democracies could it could be broken. We could be breaking it. But why don't you try every tool you've got before you actually try and storm the Capitol of the United States and hang people? So I, I, I'm I actually think that I have. I think I'm a pretty open-minded guy. I've been a journalist all my career. This has been a mind-blowing year. Uh, I saw and heard the voices of Americans, good and bad, and I saw all of them. I was in every part of this thing. I, I think we have a movement that um, that that will grow, and we will think about that for a long time. I think social justice reckoning is upon us, and I think that's magnificent. But I have learned that I, I don't know what we're going to do, because I met a lot of people who said, I'm going to vote, we're going to vote, we're going to vote those people out, goodbye, good riddance. That's not going to be the solution. There were 74, 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump, not all of whom are conspiracy theorists and, and, and uh, misinformed. And that's OK, because there are. But, you know, the Republican Party, a major American party has, has got problems uh, in its own ranks. So I think that we're going to have to figure out a way to engage people who have fallen outside of the information ecosystem. And I struggle with this every day. What is that going to look like for us? And so I go out, I, I, I go, I still travel. I'm still traveling every week, speaking with small groups of people to just figure out what connects, what works. Is it data? Is it pictures? Is it deep empathy of the sort that I do not possess, but we're going to have to do something because it's not, if you just vote the other guy out, this becomes like uh, some post-war European countries, it, it becomes a little bit unstable. I want to kind of bring it a little bit towards uh, solution sets and, and ideas that you all might have around that. I um, come out of sort of internet policymaking, and I think a lot of internet policymaking is very self-referential you know, so we all run around talking about Section 230 and multi-stakeholder governance. And I think it's really important now that the entire world is online and our democracy is online, that we sort of subject it to some common sense, you know, the kind that Emily was just talking about, like, what happens to an unregulated industry? Huh? Not all the good things, you know? Um, so I love that analogy. So 
Um, so one of the things I think we need to do is take a step back and update a lot of our offline rules so they apply online. Just offline regulations that we take for granted, most of us don't even know they exist, and make sure they apply online. So what do I mean? Consumer protection. You know, this is, uh, you know, a company can't just lie to you about its product. The FTC will come along or they'll be sued. Yet online, somebody can use a deep fake to sell you something and com- you can be completely deceived. So the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, already has authority under its consumer protection authority to do a lot more. They don't have enough staff. They haven't been super ambitious. Uh, they might need a little bit more authority from Congress, but really they should be doing a lot. Civil rights. You know, when you are, if you're an African-American female journalist and you're trying to do your job on Twitter and you're subjected to harassment and you can't do your job, that's a civil rights violation. You know, the ads that Facebook was running on housing and credit where they were giving different rates to, to um minority groups, that's a civil rights violation. And if it's not covered by our civil, if it's not being enforced by the Department of Justice, it should be. And if they need to tweak Section 230 a little bit to make that happen, the Honest Ads Act is a bill that was introduced right after the 2016 election. We saw what the Russians were doing and all these ads that were being run. That would just update our broadcast rules about transparency of political ads for the internet. So a lot of ways we can just update common sense rules that we developed over time, change them a little bit for the internet. So that's one set of things. Um, the, uh, the other set of things is there are some things that we're not going to, the government's too slow or it gets into speech issues. The platform should come together and come up with a code about how they're going to be transparent about their terms of service, who they apply to, how they're enforced, what the appeals process is. And then it needs to be And they need to have a bunch of tricks to um, stop things from going viral that are really damaging, to manage the risk. So, uh, you know, picking up on Emily's analogy, a circuit breaker like they have in high speed trading to stop something like this horrible movie, Plandemic, that played for 12 hours, got 20 million views. They finally took it down because it violated every platform's terms of service. Um, and it, you know, it's still undermining people's confidence in vaccines. And now apparently another one was, I missed it a couple of weeks ago, did the same thing. So to have a circuit breaker, there's no reason that, you know, they should amplify things that are dangerous. Um, they don't have to take it down, but they don't have to amplify it. And then the third set of things, um, and this is more in um, Allie and Emily's expertise, uh, we need to do something about journalism and about sort of just civic information. We were really lucky in the second half of the 20th century that advertising supported this industry that was sort of committed in this imperfect, elitist way, but still committed to serving the public interest. And it was somehow supported by advertising. That's not happening now because the advertising is going online. So, how do we support? especially the local journalism that Emily studies. And, and we have some ideas for how to do that that wouldn't have the government picking you know, outlets and content and so on and so on. So those are the three big buckets. And what we're trying to do by those three buckets is get away from the government or the platforms making content decisions, but instead have them in the earlier part of the process with the design of the system so that um, it's, it's more geared towards truth and trust. Karen's list is a really great one, but I think that there are a couple of things that lie outside the ambit of regulation as well. One of them is 
we have a narrow window, I think, where the platforms uh, and some media outlets as well really need to decide, as they say, which side they are on. Um, and by that, I mean, are they pro-democratic, pro-accountability, or are they anti-democratic? And I think that what you saw in 2020 in America was this real confusion uh, at the top of the platforms. Maybe it's not confusion, maybe I'm being too kind to them. We said, because Donald Trump is an elected representative, then he should be allowed to break the rules on our platforms. Um, it's an alignment with an authoritarianism style of government that is very well recognized everywhere else in the world. Yep. Um, and you would look at perhaps Fox News, Rupert Murdoch's alignment with power, my home market in the UK, here in the US, that's not journalism as an accountability mechanism. That's journalism as an enabler of authoritarianism. So it doesn't just happen with the platforms. And I think that this is uh, something that we have to be really clear about, that not everything that is journalism or not everything that is you know, a social media platform is pro-democratic. A lot of these, um, they're, they're really sort of weapons of power are aligned with the people and the institutions that would actually take more power away from the powerless. And I think that that is, you know, not easily regulated, but, but it, re it really deserves, I think, discussion, transparency and mechanisms. And I think that actually one of the very few benefits of having a small number of uh, founder-based companies is that people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and, Larry and Sergey at Google can make, still make decisions to change things within their own companies to make them pro-democratic. Uh, and I think that, so, so, so that's, that's just, that's something I would add to, that's something I would add to that, which is really this reckoning in tech and media about what it means to be a democratic institution. If I can just add to that, Emily, which I think is, is amazing. In my career as a journalist, Prior to the last couple of years, I never had to think about that as a role of my own, right? I, I'm just a journalist. I'm just telling you that it never occurred to me that I'm a practitioner of, of democracy. I was a practitioner of a lot of things, but all of us involved in anything in the information sector now have to understand that you actually have a role. You actually can make a binary choice every day about lying or telling the truth, about supporting democracy or undermining it. You can have any opinion in the world. You can be far right or far left, but you can't be anti-democracy. And I think that is a really, really important point to make. I never thought myself as a defender or upholder of democracy. And now I have to realize that words that come out of my mouth actually have an impact on that. So make a choice and stick with it. I want to create uh, an on-ramp, right? When you get on the highway, you don't, you don't start at 65 miles an hour. You're, you're coming off a road where you're driving 25 miles an hour, but you got to get to 65. You need the on-ramp. The on-ramp gets you into the fast lane. And that's what I think we can do. We, we create access for everybody to understand complex issues. We must not shy away from complexity. And frankly, we're in a much better place today to deal with complexity because of all the ways in which we can communicate things. I can take one story, put it on the internet. I can, I can do an infographic with it. I can do it on a podcast. I can do it on my TV show. I can do it as an interview somewhere else. I can go on NPR. Uh, where I, I have a weekly appearance there and do it. I have different methods. I can put it on social media. 
So I think that we can take more complex things and make them more accessible. I think anti-democratic forces work against that. They try and give you simple answers to things that are really, really complicated. So in my eyes, because I'm an economics journalist, I see all of this nativism and populism and all this kind of stuff around the world as a product of, of uh, people uh, having simple answers to actual complex problems that can be solved with major policies. You should actually be angry at your government about the way they distributed wealth, not with immigrants and refugees and transgender kids who need to use a bathroom. So I think that you need to embrace all of the complexity of policies and history and the things that occur to us and use the, any platform we have to make it, I'm gonna use the word accessible, not 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 simple. And, and Steve's a good friend of mine. That guy's got more going on in his head than anybody. And what he does is he's letting you into his head a little bit using a, a whiteboard, using a, a, a magic board. That's the magic of him. He's not oversimplifying it. He's just saying to you, how do I give you a way into this conversation so you can follow at this conversation at the speed which it's happening? We know in the United States and also in, in Europe and other places that trust in institutions cross the board, whether it's you know religions, whether it's uh, government, whether it's uh, business, whether it is, you know, uh, trust in institutions generally is down. And it used to be that patchwork of institutions that was that backstop, but. Yeah, I, I just wanna say, I don't think any of us are saying that there should be a ministry of truth. I think what we have right now is that the platforms get to make those decisions. And when they don't, as we were saying, if you have a lot of money to pump some disinformation out or set up a fake outlet, you can decide what's true and convince people through sort of trickery online. Um, or if you have a big um, bullhorn, like we definitely don't want, and in, in the United States, it would be against the constitution for the government to be making those decisions. But so that's where I get it. My complicated three-part answer, and that's why it's complicated, <laughs> is because um, we, want, we want the government to set the conditions for things like, you know, consumer protection so that you can't be tricked or civil rights so that people's, people aren't discriminated against, things like that, that the government does have a role in protecting. And if we can, can do those things and get the platforms to change enough about their design, I think it will be harder to perpetrate these disinformation campaigns. But we also, my colleague Ellen talks about reducing the noise of disinformation and increasing the signal of authoritative content. We need to do both. And so what does that mean? It means somebody like Dr. Fauci, and it means, you know, um, uh, uh, President Biden's about to have a weekly address where he talks about the vaccine or, you know, um, uh, scientists talking about the climate. You know, we need to have, you know, Steve Kordaki talking about data. So it's journalism and it's also um, other authoritative sources need to be, we need to find a way to, to give them a platform without the government deciding who's, who gets to speak and who doesn't. It's very, very tricky. It's very complicated. And I just, I'm going to say one other thing, Justin, and I'll shut up. What Ali was talking about, I just love the way he was talking about how do we give people an on-ramp to these complex issues. And it's such a, it's such an art. And I think it's something we need to think about a lot more because it's that very complexity that allows the disinformation people to pick out that 20 second bit and spin disinformation. So Ali may have truth on his side, but somebody else has simplicity on their side. And that, right. that's, that makes it really hard. And if you look at something like QAnon, not only is there a fascinating narrative that connects all these dots that don't connect, 
but they've also made it super entertaining. It's like a game even. It's not even just using storytelling techniques. It's using game techniques. So I, thinking about how do you use those techniques in a way that doesn't trick people, but helps them understand complexity is, is, really, is really the challenge of the times we're in, I think. This is this is circular, right? Because to the degree, to the extent that we uh, the, the the distrust in government feeds this, and then and then we feed through to it again. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we'll we'll all study uh, about Donald Trump, but he's not the first person who's done this. He he rode both the wave of distrust in government and the power of government. Yeah, um, and we have seen this happen many times, Emily. Uh, that's absolutely right, Ali. And, it, and it's, um, I would urge people to read Peter Pomerantsev's book called This Is Not Propaganda, which is a sort of a, it's a journalistic work, it's a personal work, but he looks at different uh, countries around the globe with authoritarian style leaders. Um, his particular interest comes from Ukraine and uh, Vladimir Putin. And he lays out the authoritarian playbook in the digital age, which is the same everywhere, which is you invert the truth. So Donald Trump says, I'm an outsider, I'm going to drain the swamp. Donald Trump is a billionaire media personality who is going to fill the swamp, but he says that. And then the next thing you do is you discredit the press, whether you're Duterte, Bolsonaro, Modi, uh, you know, dare I say it, sort of members of jo Boris Johnson's <laughs> cabinet, you, you start to talk about uh, the unreliability of the fake news media. You do, and, 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 you know, Joseph Goebbels created this in 1930s Germany. And so we know, I think this point about not being the arbiters of truth. So Ali's absolutely right. This is circular. We, we've seen this over and over again. And once you read about the foundations of authoritarianism, um, Tim Snyder, as Ali says, a great uh, academic. Um, Jason Stanley, his colleague at Yale, wrote uh, um, really uh, fantastic books on this is how propaganda works and this is how fascism works. Um, and, and, and they really kind of, there are lots of scholars who can show you how this arc happens over and over again. Yet when we're in it, we find it very difficult to call it out. And if you're not an arbiter of truth, and I think this goes for government, it goes for the platforms, it goes for the press, if you're not in, you know, we can't be too afraid of saying in our own corners, we want to make good judgments about what the truth is. Because if you are not going to be an arbiter of truth and you're in a position of power, then you're feeding into something which is much, much worse. And I, you know, I would say that actually the, the good news um, about the last horrible four years and particularly the last horrible six weeks is that we should feel, you know, Americans should feel rightfully scared. Uh, that how fragile institutions democracy yep. are. The one thing that democracy depends on is for everybody to have a shared idea of what it is mm -hmm. and buy into those institutions. And, and those institutions have to earn the trust as well. They have to be transparent. They have to be fair. They have to be properly administered. Um, it's not simple, but I think we know the principles. It's getting all of those principles, as Karen was laying out so brilliantly, to kind of work in parallel organizations. There is such a thing as truth, and we shouldn't shy away from that. So in the COVID example, the platforms in different ways tried to steer people towards the CDC or the WHO on COVID information. Um, on the election, they tried to steer people towards here, you know, here are the results that we know so far. Here's where you're voting is just lots more of that and more aggressively and assertively. And then also 
um, finding some way to increase the funding for especially local and maybe public media, even if it's, you know, sort of back end. So nobody's, so we're not choosing which outlets get the funding, but some way to fund real local news. Cause there are these news deserts and into that fall um, there's into that vacuum goes a lot of this disinformation, but it's, it's, you know, as far as who designs the definition of what a deep fake is or not, these are things that our regulators can do. Now, they can't do them right now because they don't have the expertise. And this is a big problem. There are a bunch of agencies that have acronyms that were set up, some as far back as under Teddy Roosevelt, some under um, FDR, and they've, um, they're in these big buildings on the mall, and they're very intimidating, and they're staffed with lawyers, and they just don't have the resources and they don't have the tech savvy. They're just not bilingual in both the laws they're supposed to enforce and regulate and, and evolving technology. So they need to get much more up to speed. Um, and some of this, that's why I was saying some of it, the regulators can't do, but some of it they can, they can define what a deep, deep fake is. And they can work with some of the agencies that do more technological research. There's one called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency that does a lot of research on this. NIST, which is another technology research agency. So there's there are ways that, the, that they can make those definitions and get at that. We're seeing a shifting line in journalism uh, between what you might, we would have described as activism and journalism now, and the, and this idea of sort of politically involved journalism. Um, it's a it's it's a very it's a, what does it mean for the future of journalism is a great question. It possibly means that some of the borders of journalism are a bit more fungible. What I would say is that uh, Rupert Murdoch has been deeply involved in every single. Uh, election and um, election victory in Britain going back uh, almost 50 years now. Uh, so it's not it's not something new, but it, you know that, that that sort of alignment of power that I was talking about earlier on. Um, it doesn't just happen in opposition; it happens all the time, actually, in power as well. Uh, and the alignment of, of of media with with power, you know. I was talking to, uh, there's a great scholar called Ethan Zuckerman, who I was talking to today about this, who hopefully you, you may hear from in class as well. And we were talking about how we almost lack the language to describe some of those changes that are happening at the moment. Like, is this a journalist? Is it an activist? Does it matter? Um, I think it means that we, you know, we, we do have to f sort of find, if you like, you know, Navalny, you could say, is a, you know, he's a pro-truth candidate, you know, so definitely Putin is an authoritarian. Um, and support for journalism, I think, and with journalism using using particular platforms uh, is not that unusual. It's gone back, you know, it's, it's, it's centuries old. I think transparency is, is really crucial in this. And I think that we will see a narrow sliver of journalistic organizations which are very radical about their own transparency and their own independence so i think that that's the other thing which is it kind of forces all of us to be really transparent about who funds you what are your connections why are you reporting this story now you have to be open when i was at the guardian we did this thing called open journalism which my tech team actually came up with which is saying be more like the web be more interactive um, and, and it was an idea which actually was very sort of 
didn't didn't feel like in 2005 it really took off. But now I think it really is going to be very sort of crucial to how we rebuild the field of journalism is that engagement uh, between, you know, our audiences and ourselves and real transparency for independent journalism. And I think Bellingcat do absolutely brilliant work. I think Elliot Higgins is pretty accountable who runs it. I think, you know, they show all of their work um, in their blog. They actually have a model of transparency. Um, and yet, you know, they still sort of lots of questions about, well, how independent really are they? You know, kind of what's their funding sources, et cetera, et cetera, which are, you know, appropriate questions. Yeah, so I think this alignment of power conversation is really interesting. When I worked at Al Jazeera, we we our, our slogan was, uh, you know, to to uh, be the voice of the voiceless, um, and and everybody who watches it can judge whether they do that accurately or not. But when you look at Navalny and you look at Bellingcat and you look at media, media generally is is powerful. Government is powerful. We, without being partisan about it, we we sometimes have to think of ourselves as responsible for elevating the voice of those who don't have enough voice. Now, the issue to me would become, what does Bellingcat do if Navalny went back to Russia, got elected president? Right? Now, how do we? How do they manage that? Because now Navalny's got power, and and media has power, and that alignment is a little creepy, right? I I always find I'm always very uncomfortable about the with the uh, this this thing we used to do in Washington every year, the the White House Correspondents Dinner, because I think it's weird. Why are we all dressing, getting dressed up, and taking pictures with uh, elected politicians? Um, I, I'm not sure I'm as troubled by the alignment with people who are struggling to tell a story and who don't have that voice. But I do think it has to be curated very well. In other words, we have to constantly think as journalists, what is our commitment to justice and truth? Uh, what is our commitment to people who do not have the same power we have? And are we relatively consistent in the way we approach that since the invention of media and political interests? So if, if media starts to realign itself to say, let's align ourselves with truth, and the voiceless may not be the worst development in the world. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to say something very unpopular. I'll probably be sacked for saying this, but, you know, uh, people don't have a right to whisper lies in the, every member of the population's ears. You know, we, we have to be really careful about sort of using censorship as like anything which is taken down as censorship. Nobody's being censored. <laughs> you know, they are not being thrown in jail for what they think and what they say. Certainly, in you know, parts of the world they are, but at the moment, just because you have your Twitter account taken away, that is, you know, it's deplatforming. I'm not that sorry that fringe, threatening, dangerous ideas lurk in dark places. I don't think that they should be what's occupying the mainstream, you know, uh, whether that's online, whether it's, and, and, and the problem here is that uh, populism as expressed through platforms means that you've actually had that as a, as a sort of a feature, not a bug, which is what were marginal views become suddenly mainstreamed and sort of radicalizing and, um, you know, frightening to a lot of people because they're often about um, wielding fear over other minorities, you know, online. And that's why, you know, I do, <laughs> so, I, so I think that sort of, are we gonna go in the opposite direction? Yes the platforms are going to really narrow who you know gets the megaphone i think that's absolutely sort of going, going to happen is it going to be as narrow as it was when we had three broadcast networks no you know and, and sort of 15 national newspapers no it's going to be much much wider 
is it uh, is it a bad thing that Nazis and people who want to uh, spew hate and organised armed attacks on civilians and perfectly kind of you know democratic institutions? Is it wrong that they actually have to struggle to find places that they can organize and they feel that they're, you know, somewhat kind of, you know, under pressure? No, that's not wrong either. That's just the functioning of a, a, a proper kind of a, a properly. So, so, but yeah, I mean, is there a danger of overcorrection? Yes. I don't think that that is our main problem at the moment. I would rather people had access to broadband in rural parts of America. You know, that's a big problem of access. We never talk about that. You know, let's talk, let's stop talking about whether or not the Nazis are allowed on Twitter and start talking about, you know, whether kind of people who are living, you know, in, in rural parts of, of America can actually get access to kind of the same communications technology as the rest of us. Three quick things. One is... I think people um, don't realize that there are other, sometimes, you know, we get so obsessed with the first amendment that we forget it's not the only amendment and it's not the only right. You can't, classically, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You know, there are other considerations. But secondly, um, uh, I think Renee DiResta came up with this phrase, maybe, maybe she just popularized it. You may have a right to speech, but not reach. So um, just because you don't have a right to be amplified on Facebook through their recommendation system, doesn't mean that you're being censored, doesn't mean that you're not speaking. And that's especially true for a public figure who has a huge uh, bully pulpit. And so I thought that that exception that the platforms had that Emily talked about before, where those in power got better rules and easier rules than those not in power was exactly backwards. Those people had a chance to get reached just by their positions, um, whereas others didn't to correct the record. So I think it's a great thing that that's um, coming a little bit more into balance. But then Justin raised the, the third thing I'll say in the chat, which is they can over moderate. You know, there's under moderation, which we've seen a lot of, and that tends to happen um, you know, especially for those who have power or money and you know, align with their interests. But they can over-moderate too because they're afraid of being sued or, you know, and that tends to be marginalized people who get over-moderated. And so a big thing in ho is holding, holding the, this whole system accountable. They should not be making these decisions behind closed doors. We need to know about it. There needs to be a lot more transparency, either the, the what's going on has to be given to researchers or to some government agency. Somebody needs to be holding them to account for how this is all happening. And you should, Justin, you should have quick appeals rates. So we're um, about out of time. I just want to uh, kind of put it to all three of you to say a, a kind of final word. I would love, you know, to figure out a way that people can trust information they get digitally um, separate and apart from political alignment. So uh, I, I would just like to be able to say uh, this thing has happened in Myanmar. I would like the most reliable and trustworthy conservative opinion on this. And I would like the most reliable and trustworthy liberal opinion on this. So, so I, I, I would love a rating system where I have a rating uh, rather than, you know, I, my resume tells you about the awards I've been nominated for and the awards I get. Who cares? They're all, they're all curated by people like me. What I really want to know is how reliable am I tested against however we decide we're going to test that? How reliable is all the information I provide? How reliable is all the information MSNBC provides? And then you can have a slider and decide, I want more liberal, I want more conservative, but I want only reliable. So if I'm a liar, 
if I put out this doc- documentary pandemic or, or this new one that's out about by the MyPillow guy, you go right to the bottom of the list. You're not counted. Doesn't matter how liberal or conservative you are. You're just not in the mix. Reliable people should be should be uh, active in the debate and unreliable people who lie should be penalized for that. But but let the crowd figure that out. Let technology let you figure that out, how, how that all works. I would urge you to look at some institutions that that you think still have trust. I know somebody who's studying why people trust PBS. You know, what is it about libraries? Take some of these institutions that really seem to be doing a good job or that people have trust in and figure out what it is about them and, and, and what would it mean for the 21st century? You know, how would you retool that? Libraries especially. Libraries help solve the problem Emily talked about, which is getting broadband into areas, teaches you media literacy, you know, there's a librarian there who helps you figure out how to, you know, solves, help solve Ali's problem. How do we find out what's trustworthy? How do you do your own research? Think for yourself. Um, I think libraries are an especially rich institution to pull apart and figure out, is there some of that we can disperse more evenly? Yeah, I would say, well, I would say, first of all, because I'm a teacher, I'd say don't boil the ocean. But, you know, pick one thing which you think you could reasonably do that illustrates this broader point so you know to Ali and, and, and Karen's point you know think about one thing which might help an archive like in a local in a local area or think about one thing which creates a signal that something is you know better than maybe something else um, and then the last piece of advice I would say is I think we're really underserved in this field for really knowing what works and we have a lot of very smart scientists and data scientists and journalists on this call and actually you know when I'm teaching uh, disinformation misinformation and, and how to report it the brick wall we always run into is what should we be doing you know so, so in other words you know kind of good information design um, when is the right time to kind of intervene when things start going wrong? You know, what are the moderation policies that really work? And I think instead of this fighting misinformation, which is a little bit like the war on terror, you're never going to win it, etc. Think about how everything that you're going to look at plays into building something which actually works and this is a decades-long project but you are the guys who are going to be doing it so it's a great great place to start thank you all three um we're very grateful to you uh so ali and emily and karen uh, will give you a, a virtual round of applause um everybody out there that's it for this week's sunday show i hope you'll send us your feedback you can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, and our guests, Karen Cornblue, Ali Belshi, and Emily Bell. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. Tech Policy Press.